Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a smaller series that, that flows out of a larger series. We're going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, that's one of the first books in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all give their version of the life and times of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at Mark, and we're in chapter 13. But the mini-series is the beginning of the end. We're talking about some uh, really apocalyptic things here, end-of-the-world kind of stuff. Um, and so we, if, if you want to go back and review the first sermon on this, it's, it's on the website. You can do that. But this is part two, and there's going to be one more part that I'll preach that will finish out this chapter. Um, but let's look at this together, chapter 13. Jesus is, stay, is saying some really shocking and astonishing things. If you go back to the very beginning of the chapter, Jesus has just left the temple. He left the temple, and it's been a really hard week. Jesus is, he's confronted the, the false, hypocritical, abusive, greedy, deceptive leaders. He's done that publicly, out in the open. Nobody had ever done that before. You know, if, if your Bible is laid out the way mine is, there's sections and there's headings, uninspired headings that tell you what this passage is about. And one of the last sections uh, that we taught through when Jesus was in the temple, remember he overturned the tables, he chased out the money changers, he chased out the animals, and he said, don't make my father's house a, a den of thieves. Well, your heading probably says Jesus, what, cleansed the temple, right? That's not entirely accurate. He didn't clean it. It, it was still very much dirty and corrupt and polluted. What Jesus did there was he judged the temple. And this whole section is about God's judgment that's coming on that city, on that temple, and on that system that was intended to point to the Messiah. It was intended to promote truth, but it had become a deceptive, corrupt, and abusive system that harbored lies and that exploited people. It was supposed to be where you could come and find God, but it became a system that you would come and get robbed of your dignity, of your money, of the truth. You would be made twice a son of hell uh, as the leaders that brought you there. So Jesus, is, it's judgment time. Hashtag time's up on the temple. Jesus is serving notice in this passage that, look, this amazing temple that you think is so elaborate and so beautiful, something so beautiful cannot allow to exist if it's going to harbor such ugly, hideous lies. And so Jesus, the very beginning of this chapter, his disciples, it was an awkward moment, remember? They left and they said, hey, look at how beautiful that temple is, Jesus. And he said, you see that temple over there? Not one stone will be left upon another, which was, wow. I mean, trying to wrap your mind about, around what Jesus had just told his disciples, the only thing I could even possibly compare it to would be if you had lived in New York City your entire life, before 9-11, and somebody warned you and they said, look, do you see those twin towers, the World Trade Center? Do you see that? 2,000 feet tall, 104 stories, took 10 years to build it, 50,000 employees worked there. You see that? It had come to define the, the entire skyline of New York City. It was, a, it was a symbol of power, prosperity, success. We've arrived. Imagine that you had lived in that city your entire life and watched all of that. And then somebody said, you see those towers? I'm telling you right now, not one piece of metal will be left upon another. It's all coming down, and it's all coming down soon. What would you think? Now, seriously, it's hard to wrap your mind around this, but there are some comparisons that I want to try to make today. You would think, 
No, this guy's, who is this? You're crazy, dude. I've seen the specs for that. That can resist heat up to 27, I mean, however many thousand degrees Fahrenheit. There's no way. There's no way. But I would also say this. If somebody did tell you that, you would probably have questions, wouldn't you? I mean, if this person was trustworthy like Jesus was, and they said something that dramatic, you would have a question, just like the disciples did. And your question wouldn't be, oh, who would do such a thing? That wouldn't be your question, would it? Your question wouldn't be, well, how many people are going to die? Nope. Especially if you work in the Twin Towers. If somebody told you this thing is coming down to the ground very soon, what would your question be? Be honest. When? When's this going to happen? And is that not exactly what Jesus' disciples asked him? They said, when is this going to happen? And what will be the signs of your return and the end of the age? And this is where this passage, and I have prayed that this would not be a lecture and it wouldn't be a history lesson. This would be a sermon. I have worked and prayed very hard to prepare uh, for this, for you to leave here filled with hope and not just a bunch of data and information. But a lot of people, this is one of, scholars say, this is the most challenging chapter, especially in Mark's gospel, but probably in the New Testament. And here I am preaching on it, right? <laughs> Why do you think I took so long to get here? I needed to know what this meant for myself and for you because I'm about to, to interpret this and apply this to our lives. A lot of people get themselves in the trouble, I think, when they study this passage because Jesus was answering two questions. What was the questions that they asked? One, when are these things going to happen? And two, and what will be the signs of the end of the age and your return? So in the disciples' minds, when the temple was destroyed, that was the end. That was it. They could not imagine existing without their city and without their temple. And both were going to be destroyed in about 40 years from when Jesus said this. And honestly, if you were in New York City and this is what you saw, not one piece of metal left upon another, it would feel so apocalyptic, you might think the world was over too. In fact, some people did think that was the end of the world. If somebody would have written up a description, uh, the dust and the ashes in New York City will blot out the sun. The whole world will see this on, via TV, and kings and emperors will mourn the tragic loss of life and will join America in their pursuit of justice for the victims. I mean, it sounds apocalyptic, and everything Jesus is about to tell them about how this is all going to go down, it sounds so apocalyptic and Armageddon that a lot of people get confused. Okay. Is Jesus talking about just the temple that's going to be destroyed? Or is he talking about the end of the world? And the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. But I'm going to try to explain this because if you like to study and you like to get on the internet and start researching things, what I don't want is for you to leave here and think that I'm giving you some kind of radical extreme view that's borderline heresy and wrong. Um, because people in this chapter, they do that. They take extreme views. One person that I love, admire, and respect... I was reading this and reading his interpretation. He said, this has absolutely nothing to do with the temple being destroyed in 70 AD. And I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't know how anybody can read this and know history and separate those two things. That's like insane to me. I don't, I don't understand. And some people get so bogged down in the details, but this is what helps me. Jesus is talking to 12 disciples, 12 ordinary dudes like me and like you. They're fishermen. They're not priests, they're not rabbis, they're not scholars, they don't have PhDs behind their names, and they're not prophets. They're just average, 
normal, everyday dudes. And when you read this, if it sounds like, you know what, some of what he's saying sounds like exactly what happened in 70 AD, principle of clarity is that's probably what he was talking about some of the time then. And I believe it is, as we're going to see that. So if you were living in New York City before 9-11 and somebody that you trust told you that all this was going to go down and it went down, what would you think? Who is this? This guy said a bunch of other stuff too. Maybe it's important. Maybe I should listen to him. Maybe I should believe him. Wouldn't you think that? You would. Jesus is doing this for a lot of reasons. One of them is credibility. He wants his disciples to know, look, you can trust me. I am the Lord of history. I'm driving this train. And it's going toward its ultimate and intended purpose. Nothing is haphazard. This is not, life is not a happy accident. We don't believe in serendipity. It's like Shakespeare said, he said, life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. You can't read the Bible and and, and arrive there. No, Jesus is on his throne and he is directing all of history to its ultimate course. And every single thing that he said would happen, happened exactly when it did and exactly how he said it would. And that's astonishing to me. And if you read this and you get lost in the details, you'll forget that because his disciples didn't. The very last thing that Terry read in that passage was was this. He said, I'm telling you these things so when they happen, you'll know that I told you. This is like, what? Jesus saying, just remember, remember guys, when all this goes down, remember, I told you first. I told you it would happen. And by the way, everything else I told you, you can trust is gonna happen, including the end of the age. I'm coming back. I'm coming back on the clouds of glory and every eye will see me. And I will judge unbelief, and I will gather my people together, and I will establish my kingdom. See, Jesus needs them to believe that. And Jesus understands us. Do you know that God speaks to us? He is so accommodating. He knows our our doubts. He knows that we have suspicions, and we harbor unbelief sometimes, and we're embarrassed about it. So you know what Jesus does? He does in the Bible what, what scholars have called near fulfillment and far fulfillment. Okay? And this passage is filled with that. He prophesies an event that's going to happen that's locally, that's within their lifetime, and, and mingled together with that, stirred together with that, is a far fulfillment that's going to be global and cataclysmic. He stoops, he accommodates us. He says, I know this sounds so outlandish, so how about I give you something that you can see, and then you'll believe the bigger thing. Isn't that amazing that God loves us that much? He doesn't just say, yeah, the end of the world is coming and get ready. I love that about this passage. Did you know this is the longest answer that Jesus ever gave to a question, ever? (laughs) They said, hey, when are these things going to happen? And he goes, sit down, boys. It's going to be a while. Whole chapter, 32 verses of teaching, and it's filled with commands. There's almost 20 imperatives, things to do. And I love that because when we think of the end of the world, we think, well, it's just a bunch of declarations this is going to happen that's going to happen no jesus is very pastoral and this is very practical and that's why if you are sitting under teaching about the the end of the days and it's just all sensationalized stuff and predictions and blood moons and that's all it is that's missing the very heart of what jesus is hoping to do here it really is this is a very pastoral section that's why i've taken so long to study it because i want to be a good pastor to you i want to reflect the heart of jesus here because there's things for us to do based on what he tells us here. So we're going to see that as we go 
uh, as we go along. So Jesus is answering two questions, even though Jesus is answering their questions, even though in their mind it's, it's one thing, Jesus is saying it's two things. So why is this here? Well, that's our outline for today. Um, you know what? Let, let me hit this slide first, okay? Um, the reality is that the temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left upon another. It happened exactly the way Jesus said it would. It happened exactly when he said it would. And, you know, this passage in Mark 13, it's in two other places. Luke talks about it in 1920 and 21. And uh, Matthew talks about it in chapter 24. And Matthew and Luke have a little bit more detail than Mark does. But I wanted to read this to you from Luke 19. Listen to what Jesus says. Because not only is the temple going to be destroyed, uh, he says not one stone will be left upon another. They'll all be thrown down, meaning this is intentional. God is wanting this to happen. He's judging the temple because of all the abuse and the corruption and the lies and the deception. But Luke 19 says this. When Jesus drew near and he saw the city, this is before he entered Jerusalem, he wept over it. You remember this passage? Jesus is weeping over the city. You think, man, why is, he, why is Jesus crying? This is the triumphal entry. This is a happy day. Why is Jesus crying? Because he knew. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that judgment was coming. He knew he was going to walk into the city. He was going to announce that he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He has come to fulfill everything this temple predicted sacrifices in the temple, the animals being slaughtered, drawing near to God, being in the presence of God. He was the fulfillment of all of that. And he would show up on time and they would reject him and kill him. And it broke God's heart. And so Jesus is weeping. And look what he says here. When he drew near the city, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Check this out. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So this is answering a question. Why is this going to happen? Why is the temple going to be destroyed? Why is the city going to be burned to the ground? because they did not know the time of their visitation. They rejected Jesus. That's why this is happening. And so I want to just point out three things today. Three reasons why chapter 13 is here, the section we're going to look at. Three reasons. And this is the practicality and the pastoral nature of this message. Number one, this is about commission. Okay, Jesus is realigning everyone to be on mission with him. His mission, not theirs, his. Point number two, this is about credibility. This is some fantastic prophecy. And we're not talking about Nostradamus, palm reading, oh, I see some trouble in your future. <laughs> well, yeah, that's all of us, right? No, this is very exact and, and detail, astonishing detail. So it's about credibility, belief. And the third thing is about comfort. Jesus is saying all of this is according to plan. And if you believe me and you do what I tell you to do, it will be well with you. So those are the three points we're going to look at. Uh, point number one, commission. So... Let's, look, let's get into the chapter here. Look at verse 9. That's where we started. Starts out with, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious before him what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over the death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by everyone for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this is really interesting to me, very interesting to me, because this section I just read is all about stay put, don't go anywhere, you're going to be in tremendous danger, I've sent you out as sheep among wolves, and the religious leaders, this gospel you're proclaiming, they don't like it, they're not going to welcome it, they're not going to tolerate it. Both the religious leaders and the secular leaders, they're going to drag you out of the synagogues, they're going to put you on a stand, they're going to accuse you, they're going to judge you, they'll kill you, they'll beat you, you'll be betrayed, you'll be persecuted, you'll be chased away. But he says, but don't worry, stay put, witness for my namesake. So this is all about the gospel message, the great commission. This is all about the gospel spreading to all the world. And when, it, and when the gospel is at stake, Jesus says, be fearless, stay put, don't be afraid, don't run away. I'm with you. I'm going to give you the words to say. Ask the Spirit to fill your mouth, and he will. But something changes after that. Check this out. Look at verse 14. What's the first word there? But. <laughs> but. But when you see the abomination of desolation, I'm going to talk about what that means. Don't, don't worry about that. When you see the abomination of desolation, that's what we call diapers, dirty diapers at my house. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Uh-oh, this is something changed here. Flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to his cloak. And we'll read the rest of that in a moment. Now, what in the world's going on here? I thought he was saying, stay put, witness, don't be afraid, don't be troubled, you'll be beaten, you'll be stoned, some of you will be killed, and that's exactly what happened if you read the book of Acts. But he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, and I'll show you in a minute, he's talking about when the armies come, when the armies surround Jerusalem, and when you see this desolation take place in the temple, run for your life, get out, get out while you can. Have you ever scratched your head and been like... What's going on here? Do we run? Do we stay? Should we be afraid? Should we be fearless? What in the heck's going on? That's the beauty of this passage. And there's a principle here. And here is the principle. And, and if we don't get any further than this point, I think we will have all been well served. We can just camp out here for a minute. Here's the principle that Jesus is about to give them. You only have one life to give to a cause. Make sure it's the right one. Make sure it's the right one. In other words, this temple's gonna crumble to the ground and Jerusalem's gonna be burned to the ground. And you guys, this is such a national symbol of pride for you. You're gonna think that in order to be loyal to me, you need to stay here and try and protect the temple and protect the city. But I'm telling you, don't bother. Because I'm doing this. I'm judging this city. I'm judging this temple. It's judgment time. The hammer is about to drop. And there's no reason for you to remain loyal to an apostatizing system that's corrupt. Shocking. This would have shocked the disciples to their core. But Jesus had been saying it all along. You know, whenever Jesus would confront the leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, and they would get aggravated and they would be offended, it scared the disciples. Because that was the leaders they looked up to all their life. They came to Jesus and they said, look, you, do you know what you said yesterday? It offended the leaders, Jesus. What's going on? You remember what he said? 
He said, leave them alone and get away from them. They're the blind leading the blind. And if you follow a blind person, you're going to end up in a ditch. Get away from them. Leave them alone. They're dangerous. They're abusive. They'll destroy your soul. So what Jesus is saying here is, don't you dare think that you're serving me by staying here and trying to preserve this or trying to clean this up. You can't. It's too far gone. Get out while you can. And man, that's a principle for us because I know all of us in this room will have been tempted at some point in our life to remain loyal or to pledge our allegiance to some kind of system or leader or denomination that we know it's corrupt. It's going the way that all systems go. It's becoming unfaithful to the gospel. It's deviating from biblical fidelity. But we have, we're so torn. We're like, well, man, I, I, I got to stay loyal to this. Now, listen, I don't want to overqualify this. Should you confront leaders? Yes. If this church starts to go down a dangerous path, talk to me. Talk to our elders. Pray. Do everything you can. But listen, if you can't stop it, don't you dare feel like you have to be loyal to a corrupt, abusive, apostatizing church, denomination. Does that make sense? Everybody got really quiet. I know that's, and I know most pastors probably won't tell you that, but I'm just being honest. That, that's what Jesus is telling them. He's like, look, if you stay here, you're going to die. Why? Why are, you only have one life to live. Why would you give it trying to protect this temple that I just told you I'm judging? Get out while you can. When you see the army surround Jerusalem, preserve your life and you can continue to be faithful to me. Preserving this temple, not my mission. Don't make it yours. Preserving this city, not my mission. Don't make it yours. And I just see that. I've seen it in my 15 years as a pastor. People feel these false, disingenuous loyalties to things that are corrupt. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's politics. I don't care if it's a Republican Party, a Democratic Party, this denomination, that denomination. I don't care. It doesn't matter. If they are corrupt and they depart from the gospel... Confront the leaders, do what you can to affect change. But if it's going that way, get out. Get out. You only got one life to live. Don't waste it. These shooters, I don't know if I woke up this morning to another. Within 24 hours of the El Paso, Texas Walmart shooting, where 20 people were killed, 40 were wounded, and they took the 21 year old kid who did it into custody, and they're still filling out the details. But my understanding is this kid had a cause that he was willing to give his life for. And it, it, from all indications, it's a stupid cause. <laughs> but he was devoted to it. And then there was another shooter in uh, Dayton, was it Dayton, Ohio? Nine people killed. And the shooter was killed. He gave his life for some reason they don't know yet. But this happens all, those are extreme examples. But you know what? Little examples happen. Even in the lives of Christians, we get caught up in things and we think, you know what, this, this is the mission, this is Jesus' mission. And, and we attach ourselves to some leader or some denomination or some cause. And then we get unsettled and they start to make some, take some really dangerous and unsettling turns and we feel like we have to stay connected to it. No, you don't. You don't. That's the principle that Jesus is talking about here. Don't make a mission that's divorced or disconnected from the gospel your mission as a christian you do not that i would i would just not want anyone to be deceived and think that somehow you're still serving jesus uh, if a system that's clearly under his judgment 
You know, get off the Titanic. You, ain't got to, you don't have to go down with it. Jesus has made a way of escape. And that's the reason this language, I think, is so confusing to people. Well, uh, do we, what's he talking about, get out? I mean, the principle is this. We're, we don't live in Jerusalem, do we? We didn't live back then when these things happened. But the principle is, is, is this. When, when, when God is clearly judging and when his blessing and his presence uh, is removed from an organization or a system uh, and there's nothing you can do, to stop that and you've done all you could, you've prayed, you've, you've talked to leadership and you haven't affected any change, remove yourself. That's what he's telling them and I believe that's what he's telling us. That's why this passage is still relevant because people would say, well, look, this can't be the temple get destroyed in 70 AD because it is, if it was that, then there's no relevance for us. Jesus is talking about something that's already happened, but, but the principle is the same and I believe that's what Jesus is saying. Because in their mind, what's more sacred than the temple? I mean, wouldn't you think that if you were a Jew? What is more sacred than the temple? Your calling to preach the gospel. <laughs> That's the most sacred thing that God left us. And anything that stands in the way of that or hinders that, you've got to remove it. Whether it's personal, whether it's political, <laughs> denominational, social, whatever it is. You do not owe that allegiance to Jesus because he's not there. What's more important than the city of Jerusalem? The Great Commission. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't care about Jerusalem. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that the system that he judged had not served its purpose. It was supposed to point to Christ. He was the fulfillment. He was the Messiah. And when he came, they rejected him and crucified him. And so judgment fell. That's what I'm saying. And Jesus is saying judgment is coming. You don't have to give your life for this. It's coming down. It's part of the plan. Get out while you can. I mean, that's why there's so much detail. He says, don't go back. If you're on top of the house and you see the signs, don't run back in and get your... It would, be, it would be like saying, if you're on the bottom floor of the Twin Towers, the North Tower, when the first plane hits, don't go clean off your desk. Just get out of the city while you can. Get out of Manhattan. Trust me, get out. That would have been ultimately practical to these people. One man wrote this. This was, this was helpful to me. The disciples are to flee, not because they fear what the enemy will do, but because God desires them to absent themselves when everything stands poised for the divine judgment to fall. And when the judgment falls, all who trust in themselves, their might, their leaders, their nationality, or their temple, they will be judged along with the religious system they represent. All who take their stand with Jesus will lead the temple and the city to its fate. And I think that's what this symbolizes. You know, the very beginning of this chapter, it says Jesus left the temple and his disciples left with him. Jesus has left the building and it's going to come crumbling down. It's going to be judged. And when that happens, you don't need to be here and crumble with it. Get out. I've got more work for you to do. And it's not connected to this place. He wants to mobilize the gospel and send it out. Sometimes God uses hard things like persecution to scatter people and that's exactly what happened in the book of acts when persecution hit his disciples scattered everywhere and the gospel went global but bound up in this is his promise to faithfully give them power and fill them with his spirit so that they can be witnesses for his sake fearlessness in the face of danger is a great witness to jesus when they were standing in the presence of power, 
like Caesar or Festus or Agrippa or Felix. It's amazing if you read the book of Acts how fearless they were. Proclaiming the gospel with great power and conviction fearlessly. There's a book called The Insanity of God. And it's a story. In that book is a story about a 24-year-old widow with a Muslim background who was converted to Christianity. Her name's Aisha. And she was arrested because she was so outspoken for Christ in her Islamic town. And they arrested her and they put her in the basement of the police station's unfinished cellar. And at one point, she, she felt like she couldn't stand it anymore and she was about to scream. But to her surprise, out of her mouth came a heart song of praise to Christ. And she sang to the top of her lungs in that dark cellar. And then silence happened upstairs. She could tell that everyone was listening. All the movement stopped and the sound stopped. And later that night, the the police chief, who was a Muslim, he came down and he said that he was taking her home, but on one condition. And this is a quote from the book. You must come to my house in three days. I don't understand. You are not afraid of anything. My wife and I, our daughters, and all the women I know are afraid of everything. You are not afraid of anything. I want you to come to my house so that you can tell everyone why you are not afraid. And I want you to sing that song again. Isn't that amazing? Fearlessness in the face of, of hostility. Jesus promises that. What he doesn't promise is that he's going to preserve this place in this system. Get out so that you can give your life for something like that. Not this. That's the principle here. Okay, point number two. And we're going to move fast here. Credibility. Prophecy. What is this abomination of desolation? <laughs> now, some people preach entire series, series of sermons on this. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make this as simple and user-friendly as I can, okay? Um, all those disciples would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. Why? Because this was in the Old Testament. This was a phrase that came out of the book of Daniel. Now, I told you, this is, Math, this is Mark's version, chapter 13. But Jesus, same event, Matthew records it. And these are the words you read there. Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, so where's this coming from? The Old Testament, the prophecy that Daniel, he says, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So what exactly did the prophet Daniel say? This is what Daniel said. This phrase, abomination of desolation, it occurs three times in the book of Daniel. Once in chapter 9, check this out. This is talking about the Antichrist, by the way. The, the man of lawlessness that's going to come at the end of the age. He's going to represent everything that God hates. And he's going to bring about a series, uh, an intense time of persecution and tribulation that the world's never seen. Daniel says, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the deceased destruction is poured out on the desolator. That sounds kind of cryptic, doesn't it? He says it again in chapter 11. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And then the last time is uh, chapter 12. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So what in the heck is going on here? (laughs) 
This is what's so interesting and beautiful about the Bible. For, for people who, who need just a little uh, adrenaline shot in their faith, okay, I don't think prophecy creates faith. I think it strengthens faith, just like miracles. I don't think they produce faith. I think they strengthen faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This strengthened my faith studying this this week. So Daniel is doing the same thing that Jesus is doing. He's predicting the end of the world, but there's a near fulfillment, far fulfillment, local event, global event. And Daniel is talking about something that happened hundreds of years later in 167 BC, 167 years before Jesus came. Guess what happened to the temple? It was destroyed by a Roman, by a Syrian king named uh, Antiochus um, Epiphanes IV. He was a Syrian king and he hated Jews. He hated Judaism. He hated Jerusalem. He hated the whole system of sacrifice. He, he was devoted to the Greek god Zeus. And so here's what he did. He invaded Jerusalem. He walked inside the temple. He tore down the, the, the altar in the Holy of Holies. Now think as a Jew, you cannot imagine anything more abominable than that. He, he a, a, a pagan Gentile idolater, walked inside the Holy of Holies, tore down their temple, erected a temple excuse me, erected uh, a statue of Zeus, built an altar for Zeus, and you know what he did next? He slaughtered a pig on that altar, and blood was all over the temple. Now, a pig was an unclean animal to a Jew. Unclean animal. They, you could not represent anything more abominable than that. He made circumcision a capital offense. He stopped all the sacrifices. All of that happened in 167 BC. I don't know any historian or any biblical scholar that does not say Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled, some of it, in 167 AD. So when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, get out. So you scratch your head, you're thinking, but that, that already happened 167 years before Jesus came. What's he talking about? Well, guess what? It happened again. Did you know that? Do you know the story of, of when the Roman Emperor Titus invaded the temple in 70 AD? Do you know what he did? He and all of his Roman soldiers walked inside the temple. They didn't belong in there. They were pagans. They were idolaters. They were Romans. They didn't believe in what the Jews believed in. They didn't believe in God. So he brought all of his banners in there, all of his idols in there. Same thing. The exact same thing happened. So what Jesus is saying is, he's cueing the disciples, look, this happened once before, and it's going to happen again. And I believe that's why in Matthew's version, it says, let the reader understand. It says that here too. Look, at, look, at, uh, look in chapter 13 here in Mark, and it says in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you read the Bible, you know about this. It's already happened once and it's gonna happen again and it did happen again. So it happened in 167 BC and it happened in 70 AD. Exactly the way that Jesus said it would happen. And you say, well, why is that so important? That is important because when this happened, don't you know the disciples, they would be, they would be floored. Everything that Jesus predicted, it happened to the letter. A blasphemous pagan king or leader would commit some scandalous act in the temple and it would make it desolate. All the Jews would leave. Nobody would want to be in the temple. If there was pig's blood in there, if there was a statue of Zeus, 
And all of this happened to the letter. Every single part. In fact, in Luke's, in Luke's gospel, this is what Jesus says in Luke. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, oh, he's getting more specific now. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the who? Gentiles. Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. It's exactly what happened. Titus Vespucian, he walked into the city. He burned the temple to the ground. Not one stone was left upon another because, as you know, the temple was overlaid in gold. And when those Romans saw all the heat and the gold melting, they pried all those rocks off of one another to get all the gold out. Everything that Jesus said would happen, happened to the letter. Every last prophecy. And that, that should lend credibility to Jesus, don't you think? Prophet is a powerful, it's a powerful point. That's what prophecy is designed to do. And Jesus said that many times. He also said that in John 16. He said, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you would think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is saying, look, have I lied to you yet? Has everything that I told you would happen? Has it happened exactly the way I told you? Then you remember when it does. And you remember everything else I told you is true. I am he. I'm the son of God. My yoke is, is easy. My burden is light. Nobody who comes to me will be cast out. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And then here is the third point. Um, the third point is all about comfort. Because Jesus is saying, look... Everything is absolutely under the sovereign control of God. You remember that last passage? He said, the Gentiles are going to trample the city until the time of the Gentiles is, what, fulfilled. Jesus is saying, I'm in charge of this. In fact, some of the language at the very end here, um, look at verse 18. Pray that it may not happen in winter. Have you ever wondered why is if, if this is teaching on the end of the world, and it is woven in with this, why did Jesus say, pray that it may not happen in winter? Because when this local fulfillment happened, and you had to leave Jerusalem, and you had to run to the hills, if it was in the winter, the, the wadis and the rivers would be swollen, and it would be, the terrain would be almost impossible to travel. And so Jesus is saying, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. And you want to know something really cool? It didn't. <laughs> it happened in September. Isn't that amazing? The detailed care that God gave to preserve his people. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And look at verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I told you all things beforehand. There's comfort here because he's saying, look, don't worry. I'm going to cut these days short. If you read some of the reports of what happened when, when the Romans invaded Jerusalem, it's horrific. There was cannibalism. There was betrayal. Families were turning one another in if they had food so that another Jew could eat it. It was horrific. Listen to what Eusebius says. He was a uh, historian. He says, 
I'm sorry, let me read what Josephus wrote. Of those that perished by famine in the city, the number was countless, and the miseries they underwent unspeakable. For if so much as the shadow of food appeared at any house, there was war, and the dearest friends engaged in hand-to-hand conflict with one another and snatched from each other the most wretched supports of life. Necessity compelled them to eat anything they could find, and they gathered and devoured things that were not fit even for the filthiest of irrational beasts. Finally, they did not abstain even from their girdles and shoes, and they stripped the leather hides off their shields and devoured them. This really happened when the Romans invaded Jerusalem. If you didn't listen to what Jesus said and you stayed there, and by the way, everything he's telling them is is counterintuitive. Your instinct would tell you, go to the temple, go to the walled cities, go to the fortresses. Jesus is saying, don't you dare trust in those things. They're coming down, get out. Some trust in horses, some in chariots. He's saying, you trust me and you believe me and get out. No, one million Jews were killed and slaughtered when the Roman armies invaded. The historians tell us that they ran out of crosses to crucify the Jews on. Can you imagine what would have happened if you would have stayed behind and not listened to Jesus? And, and, and friends, all of this, again, is, it, it is pointing to the end of the world. And we're going to, the next section we look at, Jesus is transitioning into the end of the age. This is just a, a preview. When you go to the theater, you see a trailer. You see, if you get there on time, you see trailers, right? Trailers are telling you what's to come. This was just a preview. The judgment on the temple, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, that was a small scale of what's going to happen when Christ returns on a large scale, okay? Jesus did not return in 70 AD. That's not, that's not when the end of the world happened. Some people believe that, that teach this chapter. That was just a local fulfillment, a near fulfillment of a much more global and cataclysmic worldwide event because it says when Christ returns, every eye will see him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. It's going to be a global cataclysmic event, but it's going to be like what happened then. It's going to be horrific. If you don't trust in what Jesus says, it's going to be horrific. And that's the beauty of this, is Jesus saying, look, against, against all uh, conventional wisdom, if you'll trust what I tell you to do, you'll be safe. Ultimate judgment is coming at the end of the world, right? Judgment's going to be poured out. But he says, if you run to me, If you flee to me for refuge, you'll be sealed. If you're reading the book of Revelation with all these seals and and all these trumpets of judgment, have you ever read that? You're like, man, what the heck? There's a lot of of symbolism and metaphors, but it says at one point, God is going to send out his angel to the four corners of the earth and all the people of God are going to be sealed. Man, that's beautiful language. We're going to be sealed. We're going to be preserved from judgment because we're in Christ. That's what this is a, this is a small picture of that. Jesus is saying, trust me and do what I tell you to do and I'll deliver you. And that's exactly what happened. You want to know a really cool thing? The historian Josephus talking about the Romans invading Jerusalem, not everybody died. History probably won't tell you this. Check this out. The people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by revelation vouchsafed to approved men, he's talking about the disciples, before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea in the, in the hills called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had fled Jerusalem, then, as if the royal city of the Jews and the whole land of Judea were entirely destitute of holy men, the judgment of God at length overtook those who had committed such outrages against Christ and his apostles and totally destroyed that generation of impious men. Did you hear that? Do you know what the early Christians did when they saw the Romans invading? Guess what they did? They ran for the hills and God spared their life 
and they were able to testify to the gospel in other places with other people. That's what's so amazing to me. They actually believe this prophecy and it saved their life. So those are the three points that I wanted to make today. And I know, hope this doesn't come across more of a history lesson or a, a lecture. It's just some of these details are just so important to mine out. Um, but this is all a picture of the judgment that is to come. And the Bible says, flee from the wrath of God and flee to the arms of Christ. That's what the real picture is. And listen, that's what we're preparing for even this morning. We are preparing to celebrate Jesus standing between us and judgment. He spared us. He rescued us. He protected us at great cost to himself. He gave his own life so that you and I can be delivered from God's wrath. Amen? And you know what it says to do when we, when we celebrate communion? You know what Jesus said you're doing? When you, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And in doing so, you are proclaiming my death until I return. See, we're still doing that. We are still proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. That's what he was telling the disciples to do 2,000 years ago. That's what he's telling us to do today. So let's pray. And as we pray, parents uh, that have children who are believers in the back, the teachers have been notified. You can make your way after we pray or when we pray back and and collect your children. And we're going to prepare to take communion together. So let's bow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these powerful truths. I pray that they are understandable and that we can just wrap our minds around your care and your love, your protection, your sacrifice, how you warned your disciples then and you warn us now, don't give ourselves to a corrupt, abusive, apostatizing system, but rather flee and give our lives to something that matters, something that counts. We only have one life to live. We only have one life to give. May we devote it and designate it for you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for all the promises. As we sang earlier, all your promises are yes and amen because of Christ. Every promise you made to us was sealed with with blood. And we're grateful for that. So I pray today we would just reflect on your goodness and prepare our hearts to receive this meal together, to remind us what our salvation cost you, Lord. Your your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, so that we could become insiders, so that we could be justified, so that we could be brought into your family. And I ask and pray all these things in the mighty and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.